This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. We're all involved in what you might call Buddhist modernism or the integration of Buddhism into Western culture, which will even vary from even different cultures like Australian culture and American culture and so forth. Um, but there are a lot of things Western culture has in common. And we've been reflecting a lot on um, how Buddhism is influenced by the cultures in which it embeds itself in. So the form of Buddhism you would find in India, and especially when the historical Buddha was teaching, Gautama was teaching around about three or 400 BCE. Um, he was teaching primarily in the Hindu Brahmanic culture. And uh, that is reflected in a lot of the written, uh, the sutras which were written down. And then you had the difference between Indian culture and Tibet, Tibetan culture. And, and again, uh, Chinese culture, very different. Japanese culture, very different. And uh, Buddhism tends to shape itself around those different cultures. And as you all know, there are um, uh, um, a, a huge amount of, of, of Buddhist scriptures, so to speak, sutras. And like with Christianity, um, there are all many different ways of interpreting these scriptures. And like with uh, Christianity, you are someone who's a good theologian tries to uh, interpret the scriptures so that they're relevant to today's time and place. And so we've had a lot of Western teachers doing starting that project for us and we are participating and following in that project. So teachers like our own Barry Majid and Joko Beck, and, but also teachers like Stephen Batchelor and others that um, are key figures in the development of um, a modern Buddhism in the West. Now, one way of thinking about this in terms of uh, in, like making Buddhist ethics relevant to the West. Um, and there are conversations that are occurring at the moment between a distinction between the salvation model and what you might call from Aristotle the eudaimonic model or basically human flourishing. In other words, 
human flourishing is about human flourishing in this time and place. The basic question that was addressed in the ethics of Aristotle were questions like, what is the good life? What is the best life? And this has been very formative of Western culture. And it's not only Western teachers that have picked up on this, but also even the Dalai Lama. When you think about it, um, when he started talking about the art of happiness, rather than everything is suffering, um, that's an example of the kind of human flourishing model. And um, although there are some things that we might drop, uh, which the Dalai Lama hasn't, um, but I just want to read the beginning of his preface to the 10th edition of this book called The Art of Happiness. And also, um, um, importantly, the subtitle being Handbook for Living. And um, he says, I'm very happy to learn that the publisher of The Art of Happiness, which I co-wrote with my old friend, the American psychiatrist, Howard Cutler, again, that sort of integration of Western psychotherapy and, and, and Buddhism, is bringing out the 10th anniversary of this book. Those who have read the book will know that it was the result of many hours of discussion with Howard representing the current scientific perspective and me representing the Buddhist understanding. So it's sort of the integration of Western science with Buddhism as well, which is important. And representing the Buddhist understanding of the issues pertaining to mental health and human well-being. So not the stress on mental health and human well-being. So when the book was received well by the general public, I felt a deep sense of satisfaction since this indicated that our labor had made some contribution towards others' happiness and well-being. Though each of us, the two authors, came from different perspectives, we always endeavored to bring our discussion to the basic human level. The level were distinctions between people, gender, race, religion, culture, and language break down. At this fundamental level, we are all the same. Each one of us aspires to happiness and each one of us does not wish to suffer. This is our most fundamental reality. And on this level, the problems that we each face as human beings remain the same. Given this belief, whenever, whenever I have the opportunity to engage with the general public, I always try to draw people's attention to this fundamental sameness of the human family and the deeply interconnected nature of our existence and welfare. I also share my belief that as a species, we need to ground our interaction with fellow human beings in the world around us in recognition of these profound yet simple truths. So, so this contrast between the salvation model and the, and, the, and, the, and the happiness model or the flourishing, human flourishing model. When I speak of the salvation model, I'm primarily speaking of the way in which the, the Pali, or some of the Pali texts and sutras were interpreted by the, uh, <coughs> the schools of Buddhism in Sri Lanka and, uh, and Thailand and Burma. And um, you probably remember we discussed this before. So in those kind of that classic interpretation of Buddhism or traditional Buddhism, Salvation was seen as being literally the end of suffering, and the end of suffering was defined by 
freedom from the wheel of a samsara. In other words, you know, the notion of rebirth continued to have meaning in those days and continued to be passed down in Buddhism. So that literally uh, the, the aggregate formation, the human formation being drawn back into life again through this craving, this, this notion of craving, which was the cause of suffering. And, uh, but eventually if one practiced and meditated appropriately enough and made enough effort, one was literally released from that wheel. It's a kind of interpretation of Buddhism, which is very difficult for Westerners, um, because it's kind of like saying that what we are doing is attempting to um, no longer be reborn again. In other words, it's a kind of like rejection of this existence in a way. And um, so it's been very understandable that um, we've developed an alternative model to that kind of model of salvation. The other model of salvation, which you will find in Zen Buddhism and, um, and in the tradition that um, primarily came down to the West through the Yatsutani Yamada line, uh, a lay Zen Buddhist group, <clears throat> they focused on salvation as being about experiencing our true nature as human beings. And what Yamada Roshi means by that is this, this, this idea of enlightenment or Satori or Kensho experience where one is, uh, realizes one's true nature. And he, he says here that um, when we awaken to our true self, the experience of seeing into our own nature and accepting this reality clearly beyond any doubt, our anxiety and suffering vanish like clouds. This joy of the moment is beyond description. Now, I'm not doubting that it is possible if one practices intensely enough, especially during a retreat, that it can happen outside of a retreat, that these kind of special experiences can happen. Um, but they very quickly fade away and um, and I would be hesitant to define salvation and even using that kind of model. So in some ways, the conversation is leading in the direction of actually letting go of the salvation rather than letting go of the notion of salvation. And coming back to this question about what are the conditions that are required to create the best possible life? What are the conditions that are required for us all to experience happiness? And um, so that takes us back to the four noble truths or the, uh, the four tasks, as Bachelor calls them. But like um, the framework of Buddhist ethics comes back down to those the first, you know, turning of the Dharma wheel, the first teaching of Gautama after his awakening, where he spoke about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the truths. That was his first sermon or his first discourse. And, 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 and the discourse after that was on the not-self or no-self. So those two particular discourses are seen as they were the first real understanding of the Dharma. 
Um, then later on, we get uh, the Mahayana unfolding of the Dharma in different ways. And it's, and um, so in those Four Noble Truths, as you all know, there was a, there was a uh, emphasis on Dukkha and the, which was translated but as suffering, but we know that suffering is not a very good translation because in the Buddhist teaching, like Dukkha, it's got almost every, every condition arising is Dukkha in the way. Um, and uh, so the, the, uh, in the, in the, we don't have time to go into the Mahayana teachings, but um, the, 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 the Bodhisattva ideal is, is the kind of Mahayana teaching in a nutshell where it rejects this notion of getting off the wheel of samsara and never coming back. The Bodhisattva replaces the Arahat ideal uh, with the notion that well, I'm not going to be released from suffering until everybody is released from suffering. And um, so that laid the foundation for the Mahayana teachings. And, and I think that lays the foundation as we move into the 19th, 20th and 21st century in the West with um, notions of well-being, mental health, happiness, a good life. And, uh, and for the West too, a good life obviously involves appreciation sometimes of sense pleasures. I don't think in the West we want to reject the pleasure of the senses. And you find like a rejection of the pleasure of the senses in the early Theravada interpretations of the teachings. Uh, we don't want to reject the, um, um, the happiness that flows from intimate relationships. We also know that Unhappiness can flow from intimate relationships as well. But if you look at the Eightfold Path, as um, which I was um, saying a little bit about during the meditation this morning, the Eightfold Path being the, uh, uh, like, you know, the, the, the first truth being the, the arising of Dukkha, and then the, 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 uh, the arising being the, the, the fact of Dukkha, or the acknowledgement of Dukkha, or the comprehension of Dukkha, being the first truth, the second truth being the insight into the arising, and the third one, the ceasing of Dukkha, and then the path which we embody and become to keep that going. So, um, in the West, we, we start to interpret again that, that sort of teaching in a slightly different way. And um, so our uh, in our tradition, the ordinary mind tradition, through Joko, passed down to Barry, and Barry extends on Joko's teachings. We have the notion of, this is not about the ending of suffering in, 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 that, in, in a sense. It's more about how we intelligently deal with or be with suffering, how we embrace suffering as part of life. In other words, in the human flourishing model, we're all about, and you find that the, the foundation of this in Chinese and, and Japanese Zen as well, is the embracing of this life and the appreciation of this life. And we, as human beings, we know we can't experience this life without experiencing some pain, some heartache, suffering, all all the all, all, every, all the unhappiness we go through. But the notion is it's worth 
accepting that. It's worth, because of the other joys that life can bring us, the delights that life can bring us. We know there is tragedy in life, but we also know there is joy in life. And in our tradition, it's, it's sitting with both those aspects um, and acknowledging that the life can be tragic, but also life can be joyful. So in Barry's interpretation, Barry Major's interpretation, it's not so much about the ending of suffering, but the embracing or the non-separation from suffering. Um, and the, the complex or the, 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 the problem then becomes our rejection of suffering, our, our wanting to avoid suffering, our wanting to dissociate from suffering, our, our want um, so in Barry's model, it's more about how we face up to and embrace our suffering. And, and as, it, as we non-separate ourselves from it, then the, the reactivity, the problems that come from rejecting suffering also uh, die down. Uh, and uh, so, um, Barry points a lot to the ways in which we deal with our own history and, and, and of, of unhappiness in our own life, whether that be trauma or some other kinds of unhappiness, that we are able to feel that pain. It's, and and, and Joko teaches this through. I mean, the, the, name, the, the notion in most trauma therapy is to intelligently, intelligently allow ourselves to experience some of that pain in order to heal. If you push away and isolate and compartmentalize that pain, it remains in the background, in our unconscious. So this, the, the notion is we've got these two, we avoiding suffering, or we try to set up all different strategies of control to avoid suffering, which can also create problems. But it's also the other side of that is the holding on uh, or holding on to good things and, and the difficulties we experience when good things go as well. And we all, we've all had experience with that, whether we've, um, we, we would have all, all of us in this room would have had some experience of loss. And uh, it's our ability to be with that loss and experience that loss which leads to less harm in the long run towards ourselves and others. And it's our, so that's the kind of, and uh, if you read Stephen Batchelor, he, he also talks about embracing dukkha, embracing suffering as well. And uh, the, uh, the nirvana is more interpreted as the kind of way in which we're able to skillfully not get caught up in that sense of reactivity, whether it leads to hate or resentment, or ill will, all those kinds of things, or anger, and our ability to use our practice to both avoid creating splits and internal divisions within ourselves, and to avoid um, um, you know, uh, the way in which that flows into relationships. Um, Another thing about Barry's teaching, which is really important, is we could almost add a, a ninth factor, and we call it right attachment. So in the earliest sort of salvation teachings, often 
was a very strict or very brute notion of, of, of non-attachment, which came from the life of a monk, which sort of like included non-attachment to family. Like when you left being a householder, you became a homeless person, a monk, and, um, and that was passed down. So in a sense, in the West, we're also reclaiming the importance of intelligent attachment. Um, the notion that a, a relationship that works well is part of the joy of life and not to be avoided, not to be detached from. And uh, hopefully in our practice, our practice increases our ability to intelligently enter into relationships of any kind, whether it be intimate relationships or whether it be uh, relationships with friends or other family members and uh, to intelligently take care of those relationships. Um, so Buddhist ethics is really founded upon this notion right from the get-go of the transformation of how we experience the world through the practices of Buddhism, through the practice of the Eightfold Path. And, uh, and that then leads to the realization that um, because there's no separately existing self and because everything's interdependent, that you know, our personal happiness is dependent upon our partner's happiness, is dependent upon our family's happiness, our community's happiness, or the global happiness of the whole, of the whole globe, every, every being, not just human beings, as well as included in this intuition, sentient beings as well. Um, so the notion is, again, about how do we create the conditions and it's very important to come back to the, the, our practice because how we care for and look after our own sense of well-being enables, enables us then to be with others and to keep, keep that going so that we're always uh, in relationship. And so our practice is all about transformation, personal transformation and social transformation to create the conditions for happiness uh, in this life, in this time. And that includes the bigger social issues, whether it be ecology, poverty, the ending of poverty, and so on. Um, so I haven't got time to go into the actual, in more detail into the Eightfold Path. I'm going to bring my talk to an end, though. But I wanted to make that distinction between these two basic models of salvation and human flourishing. And um, so we have time, we'll do about, uh, about 10 minutes um, for questions or comments. And um, so if anybody uh, on the Zoom, usual thing, if you want to ask a question or make a comment, you uh, unmute yourself. Uh, but also if anybody here wants to just raise your hand, if you want to ask a question or share something and make a comment. So, Gareth. So, reading Lama Yesu, the Dharma to the West, and he was talking about this issue, and he came up with the word equanimity, non-attachment to pleasure, non-attachment to suffering. Plus the to observe. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I think equanimity is an important 
concept we need to understand. And um, so um, there's the sense of um, equanimity gets interpreted in different ways, but if we were, if we were, it's kind of like in a nutshell, it would be about not getting caught up in the reactivity. And so I guess when we're coming from that more, you know, not being caught up in reactivity place, our response is much more likely to be compassionate in the sense of not harming ourselves and others. And uh, so equanimity is not always going to guarantee peace or joy, and we shouldn't necessarily make that as the goal of our practice. I mean, states of peace, we really will experience states of peace and well-being, uh, but we'll also still continue sometimes to experience states of anxiety because the human condition is to be existentially anxious. And, uh, and um, so it's not about, it's about how we deal with those kinds of more difficult mental states. Can we bring our you know, equanimity and meet those anxious states with equanimity as well? Uh, uh, yeah, um, Martin first, and and, and, and then Kate. Okay, what was saying? I think we should be adding another thing to the second models. We are not excited at the point, and it's one of the salvation models. The way we're looking at it is the other way. second Martin I'll try and you probably can you hear Martin at all can you repeat the question please Andrew no it's it's it's, it's more of a it's more of a um a comment than a question um mm -hmm. let me try and paraphrase it um so Martin's saying uh Martin's been a practicing Buddhist for quite a while um Martin was talking about he was making this like the, the, the two models I was talking about, the salvation model and the model of human flourishing. And he was saying something about them being the flip sides of the one coin. That and um, so could you could you just speak a little bit louder, Martin, and just expand on that expand on that again? So what, what do you mean by them being two sides of the coin? To me, it's a name of what View, right? Which is that the way we become these things. Yeah. So, um, the Dalai Lama in his book presents it from this perspective of happiness. Yep. How do you achieve happiness? Um, and the salvation that he was describing was talking about the end of Sarasara, which is as you pointed out, it's more of an issue of historical work. Yeah. Because life in the days when that model was prevalent was a lot harder 
Yep. Yep. All their life. Yep. Suffered yeah 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 so yeah so the view is the picture of how you regard the first sort of um, factor on the eightfold path, right? And, um, uh, you know, a view could include everything from our kind of um, unconscious organizing principles and core beliefs, but it also includes the, the teaching of, of Buddhism as well. And um, um, Martin's saying that, um, you know, one could view is like, for example, and I guess it's also maybe Martin's also hinting at, it, you know, we know how the, 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 the teaching that the, the Buddha taught differently according to the audience. Um, we could say that the view, the wisdom of view would be, would you're, you would teach differently depending on which context you were in as well. So maybe uh, the salvation model view may have been a better way of teaching in uh, in a historical period where there was a lot of a lot of pain and suffering and short-lived lives, whereas in the West, uh, uh, when a lot of our suffering is around human relationships not working um, or self-esteem issues, that the happiness model is more appropriate. Is it something like that you were you were pointing out, Martin? I mean, it probably hasn't totally captured what you're saying, but. I think that that the notion of view is very important, and on the uh, on the first factor of the eightfold path. And so, next one was Kate, I think. Right. And um, I'm interested say I'm really inspired by some of the really that to Jesus. And um, her part where she talks about in the middle of a stress situation, it's like a trapeze artist. Mm. And, and a trapeze artist is swinging on the bar and has this incredible main bird class that can take while they swing on. And they get the brass in this bar. So there's complete decision. And she called that place the dead spot. And <laughs> if we can remember the dead spot, I mean, this emotion in the moment, if you have time to relieve it, um, at least I think that's what she I wonder if you might elaborate on what the dead spot she's talking about. <laughs> yeah, Kate's making a reference to Diane Rosetto's book um, called it's called Waking Up to What You Do, which is the required reading for the precepts group. Um, look, I, I'm not going to try and interpret the dead spot because I'd need to have a look at the text. But I, but I think it's, it is a bit of a, you know, that sort of tightrope um, trapeze kind of moment where we are through our practice and 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 through our regular practice so it becomes 
part of our how we live to see the arising of something, right? Whether it's a judgmental thought as simple as that, or whether it's um, you know an old core belief coming up that I'm useless and no good and for nothing, and the practice enabling us to see that arising in the mind, but then to also see when we don't get caught in it, how it all ceases as well. And so it's that it's that it's that practice that leads to that seeing into the impermanence of these negative states as well. So I, I guess we're wanting to cultivate you know positive states of well-being, positive factors of enlightenment, and to um, abandon the word that's often used or release these more problematical states in the sense of um, being able to see them as they're arising in the moment. And uh, again, that's another interesting thing about Buddhist ethics as well, because, because it focuses on the transformation of our experience. It's more about the spontaneous response rather than what's the rule I apply here, what's the, the right thing to do here. The, the practice is hopefully leading to our response, which comes from the heart, you know, immediately. And uh, that idea of ethics. That includes how we relate to ourselves as well. Now, when you look at the the third, I think it's the third or the fourth um, factor on the Eightfold Path, which is uh, speech. Um, not only how we, we speak to others, but how we speak to ourselves. Being mindful of what we experience in social situations when we are speaking, being mindful of the anxiety, or being mindful of the tendency to talk too much or to not talk or talk to go quiet and all of that, we can bring that awareness into the, each moment of our life. We'll take one more comment or one more question and then we'll, uh, we'll finish. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, that's, again, it comes back down to how we interpret true essence. Um, and again, again, this is where it gets a little bit complex. You get different interpretations in the Buddhist tradition, whether it's Tibetan or Zen, and uh, um, as to um, um, so if, if we mean by essence, something which is permanent and unchanging then uh, which you which see at, at, at man, um 
is the sort of Hindu notion of a of a self which is an essence which doesn't change, uh, like is eternal. And uh, whereas it, Buddhism primarily teaches that there are slight there are lots of variations uh, that um, everything is impermanent. But even in the uh, in the in the what's called the Amidama teachings, the early teachings, there's a, a there's a concept in Buddhism referred to as the unconditioned in those early Buddhist teachings. And then there's the the essence that. Zen teachers might talk about in terms of realizing one's true nature. And uh, so these are when it gets down to um, finer distinctions, which I, I don't want to, Angie, get into right now. But I, what's most important is how it works for you, I guess. And um, so what, what does true essence mean to you? I suppose it means the, um, the, the true nature can be the <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of that's um, um, th when it comes down to, I think the thing I like about a lot of Buddhist practices, it's not about what is the truth. And um, so um, skillful means I'm not going to, like, uh, we're, we're all going to have different interpretations uh, and uh, we've got to make it meaningful for ourselves, even what it means to be a Buddhist or what it does it mean to do the precepts. And it's all about... Um, making this path make sense to us and then do our best to share it in, in community. So we're all going to have different interpretations. The most important thing is that it, it works in some way for you to um, create more happiness. Yeah. And, they, and it certainly can. Yeah. 